0: This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Petty Williams. Each week, Petty shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams.
1: Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Brandy Rosen about the honeymoon period at school and what happens when kind of the honeymoon is over. What can we do to still sustain some good academic performance and all the other pieces that go into um, school performance and succeeding in that environment? Thanks for being here, Brandy. I appreciate it. Will you start by sharing who you are and what you do?
2: Sure, and thanks so much for having me. Um, my name is Brandy Rosen. I'm a special ed consultant and coach. Um, and what I do is I work with families, really helping them navigate the um maze of special education, and and find their way through so they don't have to do it alone. Um, I I really believe strongly that when families and schools work together, that kids succeed. and And yeah. I'm a strong I'm a strong believer in public schools. Um, I. I've worked in the public school system for 30 years, um, and I, you know, I believe in it, and I, I believe that, you know, when parents are allowed um, a voice at the table, that kids really thrive and do their best, so, um, you know, kind of in my perfect world, my idea is that there wouldn't be, like, a our side, your side, that we yeah. just all come together and do what's best for kids. So, um, I work with families. I also develop curriculum and trainings for teachers, um, as well as for, um, parents in the areas of behavior, autism, um, IEPs, special education, things like that. So I kind of I kind of cover it all. But um, working with families, I really help them, you know, understand the system, navigate the system, um, you know, be there for IEPs, help them develop IEPs. And then, you know, kind of all the behind the scenes work as well.
1: Yeah, such important work, and we need more advocates, really more educational advocates, um, to help with the load. I think there's just so many families that need that assistance and help navigating the school environment when your kid doesn't learn in the way that it's designed for students to learn.
2: Right, and it's just such a it's such a big world out there, and Um, you know, we have this expectations, this expectation that parents are supposed to become experts um, in this particular field, though we wouldn't really expect that in any other field. So, you know, if your if your child needed medical care, the expectation wouldn't be that you would then all of a, all of a sudden become the expert in all medical issues. You would have people support you that know more than you, or that can help you through in a way that fits you. Um, but somehow in education, we kind of have this expectation that parents should just know everything and be able to do it with no problem. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot.
1: It is a lot. It's, it's, an unbelievable amount to try to navigate. And, you know, when you aren't educated on it, it makes it much harder to advocate for your child appropriately. You know, I, and I, and a lot of schools don't really understand the law. And so if they give parents erroneous information and parents don't know that, you know, your kid's not getting what they need and what they're entitled to. So it's a very complex thing to navigate for sure. Um, But I wanted to talk today just in general about how we manage when things start getting harder. So I had talked to you about talking about the honeymoon period of a new school year because for us, in in our experience, it's always pretty great at the very beginning of the year. There's a new teacher, there's new kids You know, it's somewhat exciting, which is stimulating, which helps the ADHD brain focus. So really their ADHD probably isn't um, impacting them as much in the classroom negatively right at the beginning, but then slowly but surely every single year for us, we get to, you know, early fall, mid fall, somewhere in October and things start kind of falling apart. We start to slide back to um, the way things normally go each school year, slide back into that more difficult space. Um, So I wanted to have a conversation about what we can do as parents to help in those situations. How do we um, get the school on board? What kind of strategies can we use to keep things moving forward more efficiently?
2: Well, I think yeah, I mean that that happens I think in 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 so many so many different cases. And I think one of the first things to think about is because we kind of know this is always going to happen or most likely will happen is to not really fall into sort of the honeymoon trap. Um because then we end up kind of we we end up a couple steps behind before we've even gotten started so um i think you know even just sitting down with your child sitting down with and then having some self reflection on that um that that though it will start, you know, we expect it to start out easy. Um, the demands are less in school. There's a lot of variables that go into why the beginning of a school year um, goes a little bit better. But mm-hmm. to remember that that from the beginning we need to start with all the things that we know work, even when we don't, when they're not necessarily needed. So, for example, um, you know, if you know that your child works best with a structured homework. Period. Let's say so. Or, you know, that it works best that they come home from school, they have a break, they get to do some active, um, you know, some activity that they like that that gives them some movement. And then they sit down for an hour. you know, whatever your schedule Mm -hmm. is that works for your student, that, that, you know, there's a certain space where they do it. All the things that we know are good for kids. Um, that even when they don't have that homework, even when it seems really easy that they're in that routine from the very get go. Um, because when, when you don't do that, then what basically ends up happening is you're starting from this place of negativity when you do start to that, get to that place. So I'll give an example so if if you know that you know a certain space in the house works best on homework and that a certain amount of time works best but at the beginning of the school year you're letting them you know sit wherever they want for as long as they want and break it up into different pieces and whatever because there's not very much homework right. then once it gets to the point where they're struggling and you start to implement that same rule again then it seems like it's coming from a place of negativity or punishment as opposed to if this is what we always do. And this is what we're going to do because it's good for you. You know, just like you have to eat your broccoli. You also have to sit in this is the area you do your homework because it works for you. Right. Um, I think some of that from a family perspective is really important and that I, so many times I, I start meeting with families around this time of year and what they, when they explain it, they say, well, we weren't doing this because it was going so well. We weren't doing this because it was going so well. And so, you know, I feel bad for the kids too, because they somehow think that they like all of a sudden, like were are failing, but really they were doing what they would normally do. It's just that the demands weren't as hard and it was the expectations weren't as hard. So my first firm, first important tip would be don't wait until the honeymoon's over, you know, get, get started right away, um, on all of those, all of those, um, all that structure that you would normally put in in place. And then, you know, along that same lines, then I'd say you start that communication with the school at the very beginning of the year before anything goes wrong as well. Um, Sometimes I work with families and they'll say, well, I didn't want to talk to the teacher because it was going so well and I didn't want them to think anything was wrong. Or, you know, maybe he wasn't going to have any of these problems, so I didn't want to put that into a teacher's head, which I get. Um, but what happens is when the teachers start to see these problems, they're kind of shocked because they think, wow, you know, this is so different. I didn't, this isn't the way this child was behaving and something must be going wrong. But if they already know what to do and how to handle it, then it doesn't have to get to that point. So, um.
1: You know, uh, I really like that you brought that up because that's a balance that I have struggled with a lot. And I think a lot of parents do, is how much do we say ahead of time and how do we how much do we say for like their they're getting to know our child. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, we kind of figured a lot of things out in first grade. We got the diagnosis, we started medicine, you know, we found some strategies through a great first grade teacher that seemed to work. So I asked for a meeting with the second grade teacher before Mm -hmm. school started. And she was super happy to accommodate and kind of went overboard with things. And so she had two desks set up for him instead of one because he tends to use up a lot of space around him. Um, she had him completely separate from the rest of the group. She had games accessible in arm's reach in case he needed to fidget. But what was happening was the way in which she was interpreting what he needed was really not what he needed at all. He felt isolated and he couldn't, follow what she was teaching and stuff because she, he was kind of off to the side in his seating. Um, two desks were just two desks to fill up with junk that nobody can find instead of one. Uh, you know. And so then in third grade, I said, okay, well, that didn't work. So now I'm just going to wait and see what happens. And just what you described happened. Yeah. Suddenly the teacher was like I don't understand what's happening. Things right. are changing and um that was actually when we were able to finally get an IEP for him and some services and you know so but so it's always been kind of this where's the balance between setting our kid up to be seen in a certain way and I think a lot of times when we communicate ADHD needs people hear troublemaker or they hear this kid's really going to be a handful um I would think that you know there's a lot of teachers who would kind of dread that before they even meet the child so I think it's really hard sometimes to know where that line is
2: yeah I I agree with you I think that you know you're going to have those teachers that that um you know, you're going to have those teachers that then anticipate things happening, but those are also most likely going to be the teachers who wouldn't handle the behavior great as it emerged either. Mm -hmm. So those are probably going to be teachers in general that, you know, are a little bit of a struggle. I think that like, you know, your example with the second grade teacher, to me, that's still like to me like that's a great story because she was trying and so that's where the homeschool communication comes in so strongly where mm-hmm. you know you're able to then as a parent jump in because they're so open and willing clearly because she was willing to do all these you know great things but it just wasn't quite right yeah that Know, to be able to jump in and say, oh my gosh, you know we appreciate you so so much, you know your willingness. Um, let's tweak this a little bit to really make sure it works. you know yeah. and so, um, I think that that kind of that that kind of communication is so important and, and I really do think I mean this this is my um, maybe off the beaten path belief on this, but there are certain, um, disabilities and behaviors that for whatever reason, people, um, people think that, um, their kids are going to be judged negatively about. And I get that because a lot of times they are the behaviors that kind of interfere. And those are, you know, often ADHD kinds of behaviors. Um, But like uh, you would never, um, if your student, if your child had a disability, like being blind or something, of course this is an exaggeration, you would never um, go into it thinking, well, I'll just see how he does, you know, like I'll just, I'll just let him go to school. I won't tell anybody and I'll see how he does Yeah. obviously he wouldn't be able to be successful. And I look at, you know, ADHD behaviors, autism behaviors, very similar to that. I think that they get categorized a little bit in a different way where people, you know, sometimes think they're a choice, quote unquote. Um, And so they see them differently, but it's just as much of a disability as anything else. And so this, you know, the amount of support needs to be the same. Um, And so, you know, just, I think finding that, communication that works. And it's one of the things I I do with families a lot is I help with that first meeting with a teacher so that we really can talk it through about what do they need? What don't they need? What do you want? What are we willing to try? Because it's still reasonable reasonable to sit down with a teacher and say, hey, this is my kid. This is what usually works with him. Um, But I would like to try a little bit less this year, you know, for example whatever. And, and to say it may not go great. And then, and then that's okay. Like I'm, you know, basically I'm, I, as a parent, I'm giving you permission to try this out teacher. And if it doesn't go well, we'll come back together, but I want to see if it'll work, you know, things like that where mm-hmm. you can sit down and say that. Um, but I, I, I totally hear you. And, you know, there's a lot of times people hear the, you know, behavior or ADHD or whatever. And they all of a sudden are like, oh man, you know, now this kid's going to be, you know, a mess in the classroom and whatever. But I think the more information that teachers have, the, the more, um, willing they are to work. It's one of, one of the things that um, I've been finding as I do some training for teachers in this area is that so many teachers, especially, I mean, obviously general ed teachers, they come to me with pure honesty with the fact that they just don't have any idea what to do. Yeah. They, they're not, it's not they don't care about the kid they just don't know they wasn't part of their training their school doesn't include it and they're like I just don't know what to do and so then yeah it becomes overwhelming and to me I I appreciate that honesty I'm like yeah I get that you know if you if you put me in a classroom and told me to teach physics I wouldn't know what to do either and I would be very bad at it you know but um so for a lot of those teachers, the more information they get, the better off they are. And so, you know, you as a parent, not only do you bring in this information about your child, but you're also, you know, educating them for future kids and for future students that they might come into, come into contact with. So that's always helpful too.
1: Yeah, and I think the language that we use to present our child to a teacher Mm -hmm. at first is really important, you know, instead of saying, my son can't sit still, or my son can't pay attention and finish a worksheet or whatever, you know we started approaching it with, first of all, it was a letter from my son, from Mm -hmm. his voice, um, speaking to the teacher. And we used the language like, I need your help with, or I may need your help with organizing my papers or writing um, a story or whatever your child needs help with. And um, we also always included something that he was looking forward to or something that he liked at school. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to having a separate science class this year. I'm really looking forward to, you know, you being my teacher, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But that gives some positivity in the message with the struggle um, with the, we're going to need more help from you, maybe um, message. Now that my son is older and I started this in middle school, I actually do a one page, Front only, just single page overview of his IEP. What does the teacher really need to know out of that? I don't know how many pages it is now, 18 or 20 pages. What, you know, they're not going to be able to sit down and read through that necessarily. And I find that it never happens at the beginning of a school year. So I found that to be really helpful to say, you know, this is what we've already identified, but here it is in a good, digestible, quick format for you to get on board, you know, and understand pretty quickly and start going forward.
2: That's a, that's a great idea. I love the idea from your son. Um, and, and that was the, the idea of information for teachers right away is another, another tip on my list, um, to simplify the information. Um, and, you know, I love the way that you present that with just what they need to know because they don't need to know every single bit of the IEP and, um, the more, you know, the more you summarize and get that to them in a positive way and they see that as something that they can do and that is manageable, then, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more success. And I would often, um, when I would meet with um, teachers with families, I would, I would encourage them to also do some prioritizing when they're talking with the teacher. Like, what do you see as the, the most important thing? What do you see as, as something that, you know, sometimes he needs, but mostly you're going to really see this as the thing. And a lot of times when parents would share, like with the teacher, um, that what they found really uh, above all was building rapport with my child. That once he felt like, you know, that you cared about him and you liked him, that was, you know, one of the the things that comes up a lot because a lot of times these kids feel like people don't like them because Mm -hmm. they have these behaviors. And so, you know, parents would say, I know this sounds weird, but just if you can show you like him, I'm telling you, like... Half the battle will be fought, and it's and it really paid off in this case. And you know, the teacher was like, "Oh my gosh, I love him. He, he's awesome." You know, and so they were like, "Well, if he can see that, then the rest of it, he'll take the feedback easier. He'll do what you say. You know, all the other pieces will fall in place a little bit easier." So sometimes, just even prioritizing within the IEP, what really they have found works um, is helpful for teachers because the majority of the time you know, teachers want to do what's right. And that's what I find too. Um, and the other thing that I always, um, I'll encourage parents to kind of hear me when I say is that you can trust, you can trust that a teacher, if they can figure out a way to make the day easier and for your child to be successful, they will, because in turn it makes their lives easier, you know? So we can make it easier for them to do what needs to be done for your child. Everybody's a winner and they're happy to do it. Um, I think what sometimes happens and oftentimes, you know, I'll coach parents before we go through because they may go, go in, like you've, you know, like you said, with a one page front, they may go in with five pages and I'm, and I always say, don't do that. Don't go in with five pages. There is just, there's no way, you know, they're immediately going to shut down. Yeah, um, absolutely and you know on that that's leads into another tip is is really making sure that you have some positive communication with teachers and staff from the beginning um whatever that is and you know i i cannot i cannot tell people enough how important that is um especially um dealing with kind of the the honeymoon fade is that if you've started out on a positive note with the teacher that that um that that you know, slide in behavior say just does not become as much of a crisis when the teacher has a good relationship with you and your family, um, because you know they they they're in a different place, and and I'd like to you know I'd like to say that every teacher. Uh, in every situation, no matter what the situation with the family or the parent is, that their interaction with children is exactly the same, but it's not the case. And we know that, you know, and so you just want to make sure that you come off um, from a positive place of um, supporting the teacher, trusting the teacher and um, letting them know that you're there as a part of the team and that you're, you know, you're on board and you're a part of the team and you know that, you know, when, when you guys work together, that your child will do well. So I always think that's really important too.
1: Yeah, I think the way that we approach it, and this touches a little bit on the language we use too, but just the way we approach anything with the school, with teachers, with staff, with administrators, is really key in how it's going to go going forward. So if you can leave your emotions out of it. It's always better. Um, sometimes I have written the nasty email that I felt deep down in my core and then not sent it. I just got it out. It was cathartic. And then, you know, I knew better than to approach it in that way. I knew that wasn't, um, really productive. Um, and I think too, you know, I always ask if I give a suggestion for handling something with my child to the teacher, I always ask what their thoughts are on it as well. I always kind of. Um, give the control back to them at the end of that to say, you know, usually it works really well if he's at the end of a row of seating. So he has a little wiggle room without disrupting everyone else. Do you think that might be a good um, strategy in your classroom? Or what do you think of this strategy? You know, something like that. So that again, just like you're saying, it's building that collaborative relationship rather than an adversarial relationship.
2: Absolutely. It's so, it is so powerful. um, And so critical because there, there is no relationship that is successful when it's built on, you know, me against you, Mm -hmm. no trust. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not going to work. And so it's just really, really important that you build that up. And that, you know, as I, it is, you know, teaching is a hard job. They have a lot of kids in the classroom. And um, we want to make sure that we are respectful to that and, and understand that they're, you know, in most cases, that's why I say in most cases, teachers mm-hmm. are trying to do what's best. And so yeah. we may disagree on that, but really coming from that place of, okay, we may not agree on this. Let's find a place where we can't agree. Um, so, and along with that, I think another tip that, I try to remind families of is to always make sure that if things are being reported by staff, um, by, a, by a friend or your child or any other, any other way than what you've seen is that you always follow up, um, from just a question point of view. So again uh, you know, I've done this with my own children with many families I work with that, that, um, they come home and they report something, mm-hmm. or a friend come says that their kid came home and reported something or saw something. I always go back to the teacher first, and I say, "Hey, this is what I heard. What, can you tell me what you saw? Can you tell me your perspective on it, and go from there?" Because, um, you know kids aren't always the most reliable reporters and things can get fuzzy in the passing of information. And so, and and sometimes it's true and it did happen and then we can deal with it there. But I always want to come first with the question, did this happen? Is this the way that, you know, this is what I heard. Is this the way that it happened before it blows up into an escalation that it doesn't need to?
1: Yeah. And a lot of kids with ADHD, tell tall tales because they are trying to convey how something felt to them right. and i learned that the hard way of course um but there can be a situation where they're what they're telling you is absolute nonsense uh-huh. but there's still something to it right they're still conveying what something felt um, like to them yeah. and i think you know when we can see that the lying isn't a character flaw but rather their own way of trying to communicate something when they don't feel equipped to do it in a different way, a more appropriate way, or if they don't feel like they would be heard maybe, you know, when we can start to realize that, then we know to ask those questions too, like you're talking about, and make sure that we figure out exactly what um, took place, but also still remembering what our child's take on it was.
2: You know, it's, so it's it's that perspective. It's that word of perspective. That's so yeah. important. Um, you know, that even even comparing the word lies to perspective that, you know, the way that they perceive the situation, though it may not be the way it actually did, doesn't mean that it was less any less impactful for them but it does mean that the way that you communicate with the school as a parent needs to be different and that's where that piece is different is really finding out first you know what actually happened so if there's something you need to deal with from the school side you know really what you're dealing with and then you'll deal with it from a parent side in a different way you know looking at that perspective um, that's really helpful too
1: I think we also have to look at that behavior and try to figure out why it's happening. Um, For us, it was school avoidance and school refusal would lead him to spin a lot of tails. Um, And it was his way of trying to figure out how to avoid discomfort or pain in school, something anxious, um, you know, something that's going on that's just making him so uncomfortable or scared that he's not willing to go Um, and really looking at, okay, what else could be going on here? Because often that sort of behavior is a symptom of something else that we just don't know about yet. So even digging deeper beyond the story that was told Into can there be other reasons why my child is, you know, saying they're getting beat up at school when maybe they're not, or, you know, saying they're getting bullied when maybe they're not? And it's not that they don't respect the gravity of reporting bullying, it's just that sometimes they're so emotionally overwhelmed and flooded that they feel like they have to say anything to get somebody to take it seriously. Right. Right. And they'll pull those triggers that are, you know, really serious and not necessarily factual, but, um, you know, all behavior is communication. And so when we have these problems, what are they really saying? And that, that could go back to schoolwork. That could go back to anything in the classroom. If a child is refusing to write their essay, they're, you know, not getting started. They're tearing up their paper. They're getting oppositional what could that be Absolutely. it's not just laziness it's something else it's no, no, no. you know especially in elementary kids it's not laziness they want to please and i think all kids all ages really right. want to please and do well
2: and they want to just be you know a kid they want to be doing what other kids are doing so that there's got mm-hmm. there's other things that underlie it and i think the more that parents can come to school as again you know looking looking to work as a team to figure that out as opposed to um just the power of the way we say things is so important to understand. Mm -hmm. So even coming at a situation like that as comparing, saying it, you know, what did you do or what happened here to, Hey, can you help me figure this out? Can we be detectives together and kind of figure out what's going on? Completely changes the communication patterns between school and home. And that's, you know, really just so critical. So, um, you know, along with that, I think the, the, big, huge sign posted on everybody's wall that should say, don't panic. um, Mm. is another important piece of how to really kind of rebound after the honeymoon um, ends because, um, you know, there'll be good days. There'll be bad days that this is, this is the nature of all kids, but you know, certainly kids with disabilities, there's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days and not every bad day requires a panic And not every bad day requires um, the level of intervention that sometimes happens. And sometimes a bad day can just be a bad day, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Sometimes I think, I was just going to say, sometimes I think we don't let our kids with disabilities even have the same kind of bad day that like everybody has, you know, some days you just have a day where you're just like, Ugh, I don't want to do anything. I don't, whatever. And it doesn't, it doesn't turn into anything past that for other kids, but for our kids, oftentimes it's like, what's wrong? What do we need to do? What do we need to change?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so We're on advice, high
1: alert. Yeah. yeah,
2: right. Always on high alert. And my advice a lot of times to parents is to breathe let's, let's just see what happens. Let's not even talk about it right now. Let's give it a day or two, because maybe that was just the day. Maybe it was because it was raining. Maybe it was, but who knows what it was. Let's just see what happens, but keep our eye on it, but see what happens. Um, because I think that sometimes we jump into the, um, you know, the, the post-honeymoon slide, um, in a panic state. Um, because I think a lot of times we haven't prepared before the honeymoon ends, um, for, for it happening. And so I think more that we prepare beforehand, then when it starts to happen, then we're there, we're good. We're ready for it. You know, we can cross our fingers and hope that it doesn't end, but if it does, we're set and we're ready to go.
1: Yeah, it's so hard, that kind of yo-yo, where one day they do really great, the next day not so much, and another day, you know, it could be just all bad, and it really is the nature of ADHD. It is very inconsistent because so many factors play into that, and, you know, over the years we've had a lot of school staff to say, well, yesterday... He, you know, did his math and did a great job and he finished it right up. And today he's not you know, and I don't understand why he won't do his work now. Well, it's not that he won't. It's just that today the stars are not aligned in the same way they were yesterday. You know, something else is happening. Um, And it's really hard to kind of wrap your head around that because we do kind of think, well, if somebody can do addition, they can do addition. If someone can write an essay one day, they can write an essay the next day. Um, If someone can sit still and quiet one day, they should be able to do that every day. But it's not the nature of what we're dealing with.
2: Or even, you know, teachers will say, well, but he sits great during social studies. And so he obviously he can do it. And then, you know, without understanding, well, yeah, there's a lot of variables that go into why that, that particular, you know, why that happens. Maybe the teacher is more engaging, maybe there's more movement, the activities are more preferred. There's a lot of things that go into that. So um, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's one of the um, one of the really tricky parts of kind of the invisibility of, of some of these disabilities where, you know, where kids who have more um, obviously, severe disabilities where they're pretty consistent in the way that they can produce work or behave Mm -hmm. teachers tend to have a lot more patience with them because you know they know what to expect but when you have a child who like you said one day perfectly on no problems nothing at all the next day can't sit still then in their mind in a lot of people's mind they think well then they must just be choosing to not do it because mm-hmm. they did it yesterday, and that again is just education and, and a level of understanding that a lot of you know a lot of people don't have. So that's that's important to be able to pass that along.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, when you start to see that, yes, the honeymoon's over and you've given it some time, but it's still kind of the same consistent issues have arisen, then ask for a meeting, but ask for a meeting in a way that says, I see that, you know, my child is having trouble at school now, and I wanted to meet and see what we can do, what kind of strategies we can help to implement, or, you know, some, just some collaborative call for, for change, right? And
2: yeah, that's, you know, in my list, once, once you get to those meetings, I think it's important to remember to have specific questions and concerns ready, um, yeah. as well as, any solutions that you have and really trying, keeping the meeting focused towards those solutions. Because I think um, sometimes those meetings can get caught in a cycle of everything that's going wrong and why it's impossible and how this can't be done and, and all of that, as opposed to really kind of flipping the switch into a different, you know, a different conversation, which is, you know. These are the questions. These are the concerns I see. Do you see these happening? Yes. Okay. So what are the solutions? How do we get there? What can we, what can we do? Um, you know, what I know some things that might work. I'm sure you know, some things because you've been teaching and how do we come together to make, you know, what works for you work for my student. And, and so that we don't get caught into that. Um, you know, I call it the emotionality of the meeting where, where, get caught in the, like, but you said this, this one time, and he told me you did all of that. That is just not helpful in any way. It's, all right, well, this is what we're seeing. What can we do about it? Let's work together.
1: Yeah, and having that list, kind of your own agenda written out before you get there of what you want to discuss or what your ideas might be helps to be more clear headed in the meeting when you're very emotional about it, but it also helps to kind of mitigate, like you're saying, some of that emotional piece of a meeting about how your child isn't fitting and isn't succeeding. You know, that's an emotionally heavy topic already. And I can say from experience, the best laid plans and all of the planning I've ever done, I can still get emotional in, in a school meeting. Um, frustration anger disappointment you know the the realization that it has to be different for my kid whatever it might be you know we can't necessarily turn our emotions off but by pre-preparing we're putting ourselves in a much better place to be able to manage them more appropriately I think
2: and one of the things I, I sometimes have my parents too before they go in I have these two um forms that I have ones called a feelings dump and what's mm-hmm. ones called a, instead of this, that. And so I, and I encourage all, I, I encourage not just parents, people to do this, but, um, the feelings dump is just before the meeting the night before, like everything, all those thoughts in your head, just get them out on a piece of paper. You know, my kids yeah. never get through school. i he's going to live with me forever. These teachers hate my kids, like all those things dump them, just dump them there for now. And you can get to them later. So they're not just all like sitting in the pit of your stomach because that's what sometimes happens. And then, um, sometimes even in the meeting we'll do it, but, uh, you know, instead of this, that is just like, this is what I want to say. Like you don't like my kid because that's what I'm thinking. And so instead, can I say this? And so instead, can you say, are there some behaviors that make it hard you know, having my student, you know, having my child in your classroom that that's a different conversation and it sounds different in the meeting and it, it facilitates conversation as opposed to, um, leading into conflict because that doesn't ever get us anywhere. So yeah, I mean, you can't be expected to not have emotions and not have feelings and you shouldn't, I mean, that's your job. You're the parent. Um, but you, but you don't want to walk out of the meeting afterwards, which some, I'm sure you've had the experience and so many parents have, where you walk out and you go, oh, man, I didn't even like get to anything I wanted to because I sort of got so wrapped up into you know, whatever that was. And, and now I don't feel like we got to where we need to go. So that's what I yeah. try to parents avoid so that the meeting can end with some some solutions and some resolutions that they're comfortable with.
1: Sometimes for meetings I will ask who's going to, t- to attend and what the school's agenda is if it's a meeting that they've called uh-huh. um, because that can allay some fears and anxiety for me going into it. I'm not thinking of the worst spinning in my head oh. as I walk in the room. Um, <clears throat> you know again, learn that through through some experiences, but I think that's a really good thing you know if you're an anxious parent or a really fearful parent, asking, you know, what what is the agenda? What are we having this meeting for? Or, you know, sending an email to everyone to say, this is what I understand the agenda of this meeting is going to be. Can you confirm? You know, so you know what you're going into. And that, that really probably is more for parents who have kids with IEPs yeah. or maybe even 504s, but, you know, it, it works in all meetings. If a teacher calls you up and says, we need to have a meeting tomorrow and you're going to just fret and freak out until the meeting tomorrow, ask why, ask what the agenda is beforehand. And you might still fret and worry, but less because at least it's a known instead of an unknown.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, hopefully, again, ideally, you've been in communication all along. And so you wouldn't be surprised or, you you know, you would be able to anticipate. But when they do come up, um, of course, you should know what I mean, even for no other reason other than the, the emotional strain. But also, is there things you need to bring? Is there information mm-hmm. you need to be aware? I mean, everybody should be on the same page coming into the meeting so that, you know, you can participate fully in that meeting. And I would encourage parents to do the same for teachers so that if they're requesting a meeting that they're really clear on what they want to make sure gets covered. Mm -hmm. Um, Because even more so than if you're, you know, concerned about grades, if you're concerned about on task time, if you're concerned about social, then the teachers can come prepared with information and they should to be able to, you know, make that time useful as opposed to sitting down and for the first time, one, you know, either the teacher or the parent is throwing out all this information and that it's the first time that either knew about it. So the more information, the better.
1: Yeah, for the last few years, I have always submitted a parent concerns letter at least two days prior to an IEP meeting. And Mm -hmm. so they know where I'm coming from when I walk in the door, what I'm still concerned about, what I want to resolve during that meeting. And that often gives them the time to maybe get with others like an autism strategist or, you know, somebody in the special ed department that knows more about executive functioning. And they can start to gather some potential strategies or tools and have an idea of how to address that walking in, whereas if we're dumping it all during a meeting, we may not really get any resolution yet. Um, and then, of course, because the IEP has a parent concerns section, I always ask for it to be copy and pasted in. Um right. Because often when they're note-taking during, and I'm talking about my concerns, it doesn't all get logged in there. You know, they're typing as fast as they can or whatever, but it doesn't all get logged. And so this was also a way to make sure that everything was being identified within legal documents at meetings as well. But, um You know, I think it's just so important for them to know where we're coming from um, in a practical way, not an emotional way. You know, my parent concerns doesn't include all my fears. It just includes what still needs to be addressed. Where are we still struggling? Yeah. Yeah. It's not... I'm so concerned. My kid's not going to graduate from high school. Although in high school that might be an appropriate thing right. to put in the IEP, but you know, right. in first grade, that's not right. an appropriate concern for a meeting about today and tomorrow right. and this year. Right. So there's lots of ways really to to kind of formally get everybody on the same page so that you're all prepared for the meeting. Um, And to have that to help you really try to keep as much of the emotion out of the conversations and the meetings and trying to work to find some things that are going to help your child because it's about that. It's about our kid and the teacher wants them to succeed just as much as we do.
2: Right. And I, and I would encourage then at the end of the meeting for um, if the school doesn't do it for you to go back and say, all right, let's I just want to real quick run through my concerns and make sure which ones got covered and which ones didn't. And maybe we can get to that in another meeting so that there's some, you know, there's some acknowledgement of what you actually got covered. But also if things didn't get covered in the meeting, that maybe you can come up with a plan to how to get how to get those needs met. Because, um, yeah. You know, I really want parents to make sure they feel, they feel heard and that everything you know is taken care of in a way that they feel comfortable with.
1: And I will send an email a day or two after that says, this is what I understood were next steps for everyone based on our meeting. Um, because I figured out, again, going through different meetings, that sometimes what I was hearing was not what they were intending to say. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would have expectations that were not approved or were not um you thought were going
2: to happen but they weren't
1: right they weren't and they weren't you know so it's and that can be really hard and that was definitely more so at the beginning of the process um because I didn't know as much yet and so if they said oh we're going to help with writing I would make these assumptions about what that would look like instead of really getting the detail and really um, kind of reiterating what I understood to make sure it was correct. Um, So I think that's a good idea, too. And again, that then can prevent later blow ups if, you know. If you were really expecting someone and that's not at all what was actually offered, you're going to get pretty frustrated when it still doesn't happen day after day. So really just making sure that everybody, um, you know, interpreted everything that was said in the same way. Everybody is on the same page about what's going to happen.
2: Right. Because sometimes, um, and, and, you know, it, it, it certainly helps when you have somebody there to, to kind of guide you through that isn't so emotionally involved, but sometimes a parent will say something and the team doesn't necessarily agree to it, but the parent thinks that because they said it, that's what's being implemented. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes even that follow-up at the end of the meeting, like we, we talked about whatever, an increase in writing support. So is the team recommending that we're doing, you know, making sure that what what actually was discussed in general becomes a specific, you know, add-on to the IEP or, you know something that's actually done.
1: Yeah, yeah. What you see results.
2: Right, right. Anything
1: else that you wanted to add? Did we cover everything that you wanted to talk about?
2: I mean, yeah. I think that you know we did actually. Um, all of. Uh, I think the most important, um, the most important thing to remember, the best way to avoid the, you know, the honeymoon slide is to prepare before it happens. I mean, that's really you know my my belief system really is about proactivity and what do we do in advance to make sure that we don't get to the, the part that we don't want to, but then when we do, you know, we can take the steps we need to, but the more we do to be prepared for that, I think that the, the, um you know, the better off we are. And, and I think even um, like, I think we spoke about at the very beginning, that idea for your own kind of personal um, thoughts to try and limit the amount of um, expectation you put on that, you know, quote unquote honeymoon period that this is going to last, but to look at it as kind of a nice transition into what will come next, but to be prepared Mm. for those next steps so they don't feel like a failure or a crisis. Yeah,
1: such good, good advice, solid advice that we can all use to implement and um, definitely agree that preparing ahead of time. I know that I have been one to get very hopeful that this is the year that it's all going to change and then get very disappointed and um, definitely preparing that, you know, your child is mostly the same this year as they were last school year. They're pretty much the same kid. So it's not all gonna suddenly be different. There are some things that they will have learned the skills or that they are doing better at or they have an accommodation that's really working now. But it's not all magically going to be different just because it's a different teacher, or a different school year. So and and that's hard to accept sometimes. It takes work on our part as parents to really get to that point. But it's so so powerful. It's really really empowering, empowering, you know, when you, when you're clear about the reality of things.
2: I agree. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you so much. For everyone listening, you can go to parentingadhdandautism.com slash 069 for episode 69 and connect with Brandy there. I will have links to her website, social media, and ways that you can learn more from her and possibly work with her as an advocate to help you navigate your child's school experience as well. So So with that, we will end this episode. I'll see everyone next
0: time. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.